We're going to be looking this morning at our passage, continuing in our series in 1 Thessalonians. And our passage today is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 16 through 18. The title of our message today is Rejoice Always, Pray Without Ceasing, In Everything Give Thanks. And that pretty much covers the entire passage right there. The only thing that's not in the title is, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. And these are golden nuggets in your word here today. Each one, Lord, a very special exhortation. And I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see how these things work together in our hearts and our minds to allow us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Lord, protect us from legalism on the one hand and lawlessness on the other hand. Allow us, Lord, to walk humbly under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin with a brief review of our last message in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 14 through 15. And there we saw that different kinds of people need different kinds of ministry. That it is not a one-size-fits-all ministry. And so we're told by the Apostle Paul to warn those who are unruly. We saw that unruly means to be disorderly or to be insubordinate, to not comply with the standards that have been established by the community or in the case of the military, by the officers of the military. We saw that to warn means to admonish with authority that it's not simply one brother to another, but rather someone who has responsibility, bringing that admonishment, that instruction, to the one who is unruly. We saw, as Paul wrote, comfort the faint-hearted. And in that, we saw that comfort means to console, to encourage, and that faint-hearted means to be timid, someone who is uh, fearful. And then in Chapter 5 and verse 14, continuing there, to uphold the weak. Uphold the weak. And we saw that to uphold means to sustain, like helping somebody walk who is uh, likely to trip and fall or to not be able to walk unaided. We saw that weak can mean feeble. It can mean without strength. But in Paul's use in various places in the New Testament, we find that weak is often in reference to a weak conscience, a conscience that cannot enter fully into the liberty that we have in Christ because of cultural backgrounds that cause them to have a tender conscience toward things like eating meat offered to idols and and so on. And so when someone's come out of a culture in which uh, the demonic is very real, then we don't want to just encourage that person to ignore those twinges of conscience, but rather to bear with them. 
and to uh, uphold them and to help them to come out of that place. And we saw that the conscience, like a watch, can be set to a wrong standard. You know, we are living on the Pacific coast. We have Pacific standard time. If I were to decide that I would prefer to live in central time and reset my watch accordingly, I would be, in that case, uh, early for everything, okay? I would be constantly showing up a couple of hours before everybody else because I set my watch to the wrong standard. And this is what happens in false religions. False religions will give you a false map and a false sense of what is right and what is wrong, causing you to feel guilty when you're not actually guilty, and causing you to not feel guilty when you actually are guilty. And so it's important that we set our conscience to the absolute standard of God's Word rather than of our own human culture. Now, we also saw that we are to be patient with all. All of these people who have different needs of ministry, the the need for patience is involved in every one of them. And the word patient means to suffer long. You often hear the term uh, long-suffering, okay, which is the old, the uh, New King James word, and it means patience. And so you're not being patient unless you're suffering. And you are not suffering long unless there's time involved. And so take that into account the next time you become impatient with someone. Realize that God is calling upon you to suffer for a while with this person in order to not drive them away or, or to as in otherwise hurt them. And Paul makes some really strong statements about that in both Romans and in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Now in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, in the second part of that verse, we read, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. And from that we see that we must overcome evil with good, not by retaliating with evil, that we can actually do well. And he he adds this phrase, for yourselves and for all, to press upon us the point that we will do well for ourselves and not just for others by insisting on responding to evil with good. We can do well for ourselves by doing good for others. And to just not go there when it comes to retaliation or getting back at anyone in any way. So that's our review. Now, today we're going to look at a short burst of three very important exhortations. And those exhortations, uh, especially in the Greek, it would be, at all times be rejoicing. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. And we see that clearly in the passage itself. Now, can we do anything always? Can we do anything without ceasing? Can we do anything consistently in everything? I mean, these are really challenging exhortations because the way that we experience the world, this is not practical. I mean, we got stuff to do, right? We've got places to be. 
We've got things that uh, would seem to conflict with these exhortations. How can this even be possible? And so if this is, as Paul writes, the will of God in Christ Jesus for us, we can be sure that God has made a way for us to obey these exhortations. This brings me back to a an idea that is kind of central to everything that I do in the ministry, and that is that God is both good and wise. He's not only good. He's not only wise. He is both good and wise. And so when God does something, he always does it for some good reason. And when he does something for some good reason, he does it wisely. He does it in the best of all possible ways, ways that are compatible with everything else that is good and wise. And this is why you guys will hear me say, God does not give us conflicting obligations. If something is clearly an obligation from God, it will be perfectly compatible with every other obligation that we have that is from God. The problem is we have a tendency to add things to the list of what we feel are our obligations. And it's like tossing a puzzle piece into the wrong box. And you end up with things that just don't fit. And I'm sure you've all experienced that at some point or another. If you find that there are pieces of your puzzle that don't fit, it may be that they're not pieces of your puzzle. It may be that you're trying to make something fit that was never intended to fit. It may be that you've made a rash vow. It may be that you have uh, uh, had a desire for something that was not something God wanted you to do. And so you have a life that doesn't work because you're trying to make things work together that do not work together. So whatever it is that God requires of us, he provides for us in Christ. Now, this is made clear in a quote from St. Augustine, Augustine, uh, St. Augustine from, of Hippo, a great uh, early church father and, and uh, theologian. But he writes, grant, this is a prayer, grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou wilt. As long as you're providing what you require, Go ahead and command it. I'm safe as long as you're going to provide the thing you require. Then I don't have to be afraid of the consequences. I know that it's going to work. And so I'm going to make the case in this message this morning that these three exhortations are fulfilled in us as we walk in the obedience of faith in our position of total security in Christ, our amazing access to God in prayer, and our complete unworthiness to receive God's mercy. If we can walk by faith in regard to these truths, these realities, the exhortations that Paul gives to us will take care of themselves that we will find ourselves praying without ceasing. 
we will find ourselves always rejoicing. We will find ourselves being thankful in everything. Not because we have piled on another list of things I gotta do, but rather because I'm walking by faith in these realities. These are the natural results that will show up in my life. That's my point. I, I, as I approached this passage uh, this week, I was very concerned that I not create the impression that you all have to go home and do more. Work harder. You know, mm, make this happen. I believe they all take care of themselves. Now, they are exhortations. We have some responsibility here. But those responsibilities are bearable and doable and practical if we approach each of these things as a response to our faith. Okay? So, when we are alive in Christ, all these things will be always and unceasing functions of our new spiritual nature as believers. Because we are saved by faith alone. And we then go on to please God by faith alone. And as we've seen in the past few messages, whatever is not of faith is actually sin. And so let's begin. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and, and verse 16. Rejoice always. Now, we see this exhortation in other places in Paul's writings. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do you get the point here? It is God's will that you rejoice. Paul commands you to rejoice. Now the Greek word used here is charitet, which means to rejoice and be glad. So it is a command to feel happy. How can you do that? If you don't feel happy, how can you make yourself feel happy? Well, this commandment to rejoice is not a simple suggestion or a request. It's a direct commandment to God, of God, for, to his people. So this, we don't want to dodge this bullet. We don't want to explain it away. That's not what we're going to do. But we're going to look at how it works. In the Greek, the emphasis on, is on the word always. A literal translation of this passage would be, at all times, be rejoicing. Present tense. At all times, be rejoicing. So how can we be doing anything at all times, let alone rejoicing at all times? And then we have this question. What about Romans 12 and verse 15? Now, I know I don't even have to put the passage up because you already know what it said. No, you don't. I didn't. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is a command to weep. Now, we're to rejoice with those when they're rejoicing. We're to be weeping with those who are weeping. But how does that fit with the command to re be rejoicing always? To always be rejoicing. Well, when we are required to show empathy toward others, we do so by joining in their joy when they are, are happy. And we do so by entering into their sadness when they are weeping. So this is empathy. This is showing concern for others. 
You don't walk into a room where people are mourning and start cracking jokes. Okay? And, and you, you learn how to use the right body language so that people understand that you are feeling with them what they're feeling and, and not just being so self-centered as to try to change uh, that. But this kind of empathy, this kind of weeping, does not affect our joy in Christ because that would be a direct disobedience to this command. So there's something going on here that goes deeper than just our surface expressions of compassion and concern for others. We're dealing with the ability to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, where he says he is as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This is a simultaneous state of heart and mind. We are sorrowful. People are dying. Persecution is happening. People's lives are being wrecked by uh, unbelievers. And yet we are always rejoicing. So how does that work? If we can be deeply sorrowful while still rejoicing in the Lord, there's got to be some mechanism that makes that happen without creating a, 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 a discord, a dysfunction. And I believe the answer lies in the nature of our emotions. Now, I, I've taught on this topic in the past, normally in the context of training men to preach. Okay? So those guys in the, in the congregation here who aspire to preach effectively, I want you to kind of listen to this on two levels. Okay? One is on this issue of how can I be rejoicing and yet be sorrowful at the same time? Well, we need to acknowledge the fact that joy, which is the root word of rejoicing, is an emotion. And we don't have to treat it like it's some special emotion, some supernatural emotion. I've heard many preachers, including John MacArthur, who I believe get this wrong. They try to carve out some special category that are just supernatural. And therefore, they don't have to comply with any understandable issue regarding a normal emotion. I think that's wrong. I think that joy is an emotion. And as we're going to see, it is an emotion that is going to be regulated by our faith. Okay? So, it's like any other. It comes and goes. Why does an emotion come and go? Because every emotion, not just joy, all the different emotions are physical expressions. That means they are part of your body language that God has given to you. Uh, and it is an expression of how we perceive the status or the situation of something that we either value and love and care strongly about, or something that we disdain and hate and don't like. And there's also this middle category of things that we're simply apathetic toward. So we've got three different ways to respond to the status of something based upon whether we love it or hate it or don't care at all. But in every case, our body language will communicate the way we perceive this thing. Okay? Now, when you're talking about body language, we're talking about gestures, right? 
We're talking about posture. We're talking about facial expression. And those who study communication have, have found that we give about 60 or 70 percent uh, of, of the weight of communication to body language. And if the body language conflicts with the vocal message, we will go with the body language. Okay? So if I say to you, I love you, you're likely to go with my body language rather than my words. Right? Because everything I'm doing says, you don't love me. So I'm just going to discount that. I'm going to assume you, you misspoke. Because <laughs> your body language is so loud. Now, to the degree that we care about anything, we may remote, emote. Emote means express, express an emotion. Now, I use the word may there very carefully because there are times in which you will not express emotion, but only to the degree that we perceive the status or the situation of the thing that we either care about, don't care for, or don't have any feelings about at all. So, the only way to maintain an emotion then would be by constantly perceiving the status of whatever it is that we care about or don't care about. How do you constantly perceive the status of something? Well, that is, I believe, going to be the key to understanding this command. Let's look at a simple illustration to see how our emotions work. And so I had fun putting this together. I hope you like it. Here we are in a residential neighborhood which has a cat crossing. Okay, there's the sign. There are cats in this neighborhood. Now, we're dealing with a real cat in this story. And so here we have a real cat and this real cat is going to cross the road. But there is a teenager driving through the neighborhood at about 60 miles an hour in his nice red car here. And guess what? He hits the cat. Now, based upon your relationship to the cat, that's the ghost cat right there, Based upon your relationship to this cat, you're going to emote. So here's a guy over here. He's glad, because he's always hated that cat. We don't know why, but he did. But he's emoting, right? Now over here we have a mother who's mad. You crazy driver, I've got kids in this neighborhood. So she's upset, but not about the cat. She's upset about the guy speeding through the neighborhood in his car. Now down here we have this little girl. She's sad because that was her kitty. And now the kitty's dead. But we have a neighbor boy over here who's scared because he, he comes out of a background of superstition and he says, a black cat getting hit right there in front of you? That's bad luck. Now you see, we've got four different emotions being expressed all in relationship to how these people relate to or don't relate to this cat. But there's a fifth 
result here. There's this guy. No emotion at all. Be with you in a second. Okay? <laughs> He's looking at his phone when the cat gets hit. He does not emote. Why? Because he has no perception of the status of this cat. However he may feel about the cat, if he doesn't perceive it, he doesn't feel anything. Now, when you're counseling people who are going through uh, a hard place, like grieving over the loss of a loved one, you'll observe that there are two major ways in which they try to turn down these strong emotions. One is by denying uh, their, their care, denying that they even care. And it's silly, but it, it's real. It says, I, I'm better off without them. They'll, they'll say things that you, you, what? That's not true. But what they're doing is they're turning down the knob of values. I don't value this, so therefore my emotions can go away. Now, the other way is by denying their perceptions. They turn the knob of perception down and say things like, this is not happening. This can't be happening. I refuse to believe that this has happened. And that is the way we deal with strong emotions. We either turn down our values or we turn down our perception, and one way or another we get the emotions to go away. Very real phenomenon. But what happens... If it's not a cat in the road, what happens if it's a baby in the road? What happens to our emotions now? I mean, you can feel it right now, just in this little little thought game we're going through. If it's a baby instead of a cat, suddenly our emotions just rear up. And hopefully, everybody in this scenario would be upset because a baby just got hit by a car. doesn't matter what your relationship is to the baby. It's a baby. Do you see what's going on here? To the degree that you value something and to the degree that you perceive the status of what you value, you will emote And your emotion will be an expression of those two things. And so, joy is the emotion that we express when what we value most is clearly secured for us. That is what we have in Christ through the gospel. The reason that we can rejoice always is because we can always perceive the security of what we have in Christ. And even though we may be going through some of the hardest things imaginable, and yet deep in our heart, we are rejoicing to know that nothing is going to separate us from what God has done for us in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6, you see this idea woven through this passage. He says, In this you greatly... Rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. See, they're rejoicing, and yet they're grieving at the same time. That the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's when Christ returns. Whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see how these emotions are weaving through this passage? Our perception of what's going on around us, our perception of what is eternally secure in Christ allows us to be suffering grief and at the same time rejoicing even with an inexpressible joy. And this is a consequence of our faith. At all times, be rejoicing is inevitable when we clearly see the truth. Now, our perception of what is really going on turns our sorrow into rejoicing. As we read in Psalm 30 in verses 11 and 12, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. To the end that my glory, that by the way is your tongue, my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. We have almost a whole passage from 1 Thessalonians right here in this psalm. Paul may have had this psalm in mind when he wrote that passage. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange when your bottle drops on the floor. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. So we see again, we can be grieving on the one hand, going through difficult times and trials, and yet have a deep rejoicing going on in our heart as we perceive the security that we have in Christ. So I can be struggling with a very severe problem in the moment, and yet at the same time be dancing with joy and gladness in Christ. If what is of absolute value to me is absolutely secured for me in Christ, I will rejoice. In Romans 8, 28, we see some of these amazing passages, sometimes startling passages, sometimes un unsettling passages, such as Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there are those who are very uncomfortable with this word predestined. It makes it seem like everything is already predetermined. 
Because it is. That's what the word means. And people don't like the idea that they are not the one who's in control, that they're not the master of their own fate. God is the master of your fate. And if he, by his mercy and grace, has saved you, as Paul tells us, that even the faith itself is not of your own. It is a gift from God. So, we won't go there beyond that today, but the point is, this passage is so, so comforting to know that it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God. Our perception by faith of what is really going on is going to turn our sorrow into rejoicing. And again, what is of absolute value to me is absolutely secure. If it's absolutely secured in Christ, then I will rejoice. And we go to the other end of Romans chapter 8, and we find this again, another unsettling passage, where Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul, I thought you were going to encourage me here. But look at what comes next. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then the Arminian steps in and says, yeah, but you can always take yourself out of God's hand. You can always walk away. You can always decide you you don't believe anymore. No, according to this, no creature is going to be able to Snatch us out of Christ's hand. We are in the Father's hand for good. If we are born again, we are there for good. And God will work out what he's worked in. We don't need to be afraid. He will finish what he has started. Now the question of whether he has started anything, that's another question. But if he has started this process, he will complete it. And we can be confident that he will complete it in us and I believe also in those that we love. So if our perception, it is our perception, again, our perception by faith of what is really going on that allows us to rejoice even in the middle of our sorrows. Now I've spent quite a bit of time on this in order to establish the principle that we are going to fulfill these things by faith, not by just ruin up our willpower and saying, I am going to rejoice more. No, if you want to rejoice more, focus a little bit more clearly on your security in Christ. And you will find yourself rejoicing if you really understand what God has done for you in Christ. Rejoicing is going to take care of itself. But let's go now to praying. Pray without without ceasing pray without ceasing to the God who is there now 
I'd like to quote from a hero of mine. He's gone to be with the Lord. His name is Francis Schaeffer. And in a book that he wrote entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. On page 81, you will find this quote. And even though the, the point I want to make is at the end of the quote, the whole quote is just wonderful. So here we go. The strength of the Christian system, the acid test of it, is that everything fits under the apex of the existent, infinite, personal God. And it is the only system in the world where that is true. No other system has an apex under which everything fits. That means a canopy that can include all of reality, all that we observe about reality. That is why I am a Christian, Schaefer writes, and no longer an agnostic. In all the other systems, something sticks out. Something cannot be included, and it has to be mutilated or ignored. But without losing his own integrity, the Christian can see everything fitting into place under the Christian apex of existence of the infinite personal God who is there. Now, the reason that we are able to pray without ceasing is because God is always there. Okay? Have you, you know, you, you hear people, sometimes you see them in the coffee shop and they got their phone and all of a sudden they go, are you there? Are you there? And if nobody answers, they go, oh, I guess I lost the call. Or they go, oh, good, you're there. <laughs> well, God is there. God is there. So you can talk to him. You can talk to him anywhere, anytime. You can pray without ceasing. Now, the Greek word is adilephitos, which means to pray continually. Okay, we're going to be not just praying once in a while, but praying continually or without ceasing. If God is always there to commune with about everything at all times, we can talk with him about everything as it happens. Now you say, well, I know we can, but we don't. Well, I want to offer you what I think is a solution. My heart and mind are never silent. I'm always thinking. My mind is constantly making observations, expressing desires, maybe even opinions, right? Feeling concern for others, trying to solve problems. All of that's going on inside my brain. But who am I talking to? Think about that. Who am I talking to? I have two basic options. I'm either talking to myself, or just as easily, I can be praying to God. All of these thoughts can be Godward. It's just a matter of me having the faith to see that He's there at all times. I'm never alone. And so every thought in my mind and even in my heart can be and should be a conversation with God. So why not make every thought of my mind a conversation with my Creator, my Redeemer, my Heavenly Father, my Counselor, 
my friend, because he is the God who is there. Now, that does not mean that this is the only kind of prayer we pray. We can also have focused times in which we pray fervently, to use the phrase found in James. There should be times of fervent, focused prayer. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, we read that, So when they appointed elders in every church, they prayed with fasting. And they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We're about to set a a man into the role of an elder in the church. Perhaps prayer with fasting would be appropriate, right? But the point is that this is not just your ordinary conversational prayer of God is always there and I'm just thinking my thoughts toward him. This is group prayer, you know, organized prayer, gathering for prayer. When we have our services, we gather in a circle. And by the way, you guys are violating tradition by praying there instead of praying over there this morning. I just want to point that out to you. You know, tradition is important to me. Now, the point I want to make here is you can be praying without ceasing. But part of that praying without ceasing can be much more focused and intentional and, and it has, as James says, uh, it can avail much. It, God answers, Jesus said, if two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Ask anything and I'll do it. That's a pretty serious promise, right? So we want to take that seriously and gather intentionally and pray fervently. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. There are times when a husband and wife may separate from one another temporarily in order to give themselves more completely to fasting and prayer and then come back together so that they are not tempted by their separation. So between these times of focused, fervent prayer, we can also pray without ceasing as we converse with God in our mind and in our heart. Now, there are different kinds of prayer, and I thought I would just go ahead and grab this quote from uh, John MacArthur, because it covers a lot of territory very quickly. James talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that accomplishes much. Let's talk about that phrase for a minute. The word is praise in the Greek, and it's the most common New Testament word for prayer. The word praise is the most common New Testament word for prayer. It is the general word for prayer. That prayer could contain praise, but it could also also contain petition, asking for things. It could and should contain confession. That would be of sin. It could and should contain intercession, Uh, That would be praying literally, interceding for someone else. Prayer is really a desire-sent 
Godward, a desire to be forgiven, a desire to be understood, a desire to have a need met, a desire on behalf of someone else, a desire that comfort be granted to certain situations, a wisdom to be given to a certain person, that resolution could come to a certain problem. It's just a desire sent Godward. And you know, that's how Christians live their lives. Great quote. Now, we move on to 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and the phrase, in everything, give thanks. Now, the Greek here is in pante eucharistē, to be thankful in all circumstances. Now, remember, the same principle applies to all three of these. To the degree that we are walking in the obedience of faith, these things are going to become a natural response to that reality that we see by faith. Thankfulness begins with an attitude of humility that acknowledges that what little we may have at any time is still far more than we deserve. If you want to really be thankful, you've got to start at this point. I don't deserve anything. I have so much more than what I deserve. I have so much better than what I deserve. And from that position of humble acknowledgement that you deserve nothing, you find yourself thankful. (laughs) I mean, how can you not be thankful when you acknowledge you deserve nothing? Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's a various thing, a very serious sin to be unthankful. Unthankfulness is behind many of the headlines we read today. For we read in Romans 1 verse 21, because they, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When we see people so unthankful for the way that God created them, that they want to use extraordinary measures to change themselves, we're dealing with deep unthankfulness. That's what's going on. Uh, I don't want to meddle in, in anybody's, uh, you know, decisions on these areas, but I'm just going to st- call it the way I see it. You know, I'm, an, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to tell you what I would do if I were you. And so that's what I'm going to do. I would not, I mean, God has created, I, I know I'm not God's gift to beautiful manhood here, but I am not going to try to improve myself by having an amateur artist practice on my skin with permanent ink. I have yet to see any of those attempts actually create any improvement in the situation. On the contrary, I've I've seen people who become grotesque. And the only way that they can think that they are somehow more beautiful is because they are the companions of fools. 
And you've got fools looking at one another going, that looks great. Now, I did the same thing when I was a young, when I was a young hippie, I thought my long hair looked cool. It looked like a dish rag on top of my head. This was before the age of blow dryers, okay? And so I just looked horrible. But my friends all looked horrible too, and we thought we were pretty cool. Now, I'm just going to say that across the board, consider the possibility that what you think is beautiful is actually unthankfulness to the God who created you. And that if you just glory in what he's made you to be, I'm not saying get caught up in this culture. I mean, the, the cover model is just as much a lie as the tattoo artist cover model, okay? Doesn't matter which cover model you look at, they're all pretty much rooted in foolishness, comparing yourselves among yourselves, which is not wise. So my, my encouragement to you is be thankful. You don't deserve anything. You don't even deserve to exist. You don't deserve to be alive. If you're taking a breath right now, be thankful. And then start from there and look around at all the beautiful good things that God has showered upon you and be thankful. And don't try to meddle with God's created order because that is the very heart of unthankfulness. Now, I know there's a lot that can be said about all these things, and I'm willing to talk to anybody at all about it. But I, I feel that we are not going to cause the judgment of God by what we see happening around us, but rather that we are observing the judgment of God by what we see around us. God is, as he says in Romans chapter 1, giving people over to their depravity, giving them over to their futile minds, giving them over to their confusion about sexuality, giving them over to their antisocial behaviors. These things are not going to cause God to step in and judge us. They are God stepping in and judging us. And we, as Christians, are here to walk through it and as we walk through it, let us be thankful. Do you have a perspective that others don't have? Have you been given instruction in God's word that's allowed you to see things a little more clearly than your neighbor? Then do not be proud. Be thankful. Just be thankful. Oh, give thanks. Our thankfulness is essentially for God's mercy. Because we're starting from a place in which we deserve nothing, we are able to give God thanks for everything that we have. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Thankfulness often leads to greater blessing and to greater provision from God. In Mark, or Matthew chapter 15, verse 36, we read, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks. Jesus is giving thanks. I think this is a preliminary thing to a miracle. You give thanks for the little bit you've got, and God says, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're feeding 5,000 people. That's a wonderful example of what happens when we approach the little bit that we have with thankfulness. 
Thankfulness allows us to drink from the cup of salvation. You know, when Jesus took the cup during the Lord's Supper and he gave thanks and then he gave it to them. You know, there's something there. He says, drink from it, all of you. When we take part in the Lord's Supper, it begins with being thankful. To to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner would be to do so without thankfulness, without realizing what this has cost God in order to allow us to drink from the cup of salvation. To the degree that we perceive how unworthy we are to have anything at all, we will be deeply thankful to God no matter what our circumstances may be. (laughs) You know, this last week, you know, I'm preparing this message and I'm trying to get my my hands, uh, you know, get an arm around this issue. And I had one day this last week in which in the first class, uh, in my terrarium classes, I had these, these two women come in. This has never happened before. They came in, they heard my presentation about how wonderful terrariums are, and then they looked around and said, there is no way we're going to spend this much money on buying a terrarium. Can we, can we have our $25 credit, you know, and apply that to some rocks or, or some plants, you know, and well, they were the only ones in the class, so it was like, okay, I guess, and so we did, and so, so I'm trying to just buck up, you know, and be cheerful and give these ladies what they want, and, um, and so that class is over, and I'm thinking, wow, that has never happened before. The next class, we're planting terrariums, everybody's doing great, and this one dear young lady begins to get sick, and she starts throwing up in the trash can. This has never happened before, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, God, what is going on here, you know? And so I had to, you know, take the trash can out and empty it and rinse it out, and she was very embarrassed, you know? And, and then I realized what I'm working on. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for my total jerk customers that day. Thank you, Lord, for this lady getting sick in the class. And this time there were other people in the class. And they're all going like this and holding their, you know, trying to get out of the room. And Thank you, Lord. To be thankful, to rejoice in all things, to pray without ceasing. These are all attitudes of heart that come from having a faith that sees the reality behind it all. So, we are also to be thankful to others who have helped us along our way. Paul writes in Romans 16, verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow laborers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. They put their own lives on the line in order to help Paul, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Aquila and Priscilla are hosting a local church in their home. We need to thank these people. We need to be thankful for them, and we need to express our thanks to them. Gratitude towards anyone must begin with the same humble acknowledgement 
that we have received far more and better than we could ever deserve. If we begin with the attitude of, I deserve more, I deserve more than what I'm getting, then we will never be thankful. We will never be satisfied. We will never be thankful. So, and, and I'm not trying to talk you into some you know, delusion that you don't deserve anything. I'm trying to get you in touch with the reality that you don't deserve anything. And if you can really believe that, as the scriptures make it clear that it's true, you cannot help but be thankful. So begin and end all of your thanksgiving with this understanding of where you're starting from. The reason that we share our needs in prayer with others is in order to multiply the thankfulness that will result from God's answer to our prayers. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure and above strength, so that we despaired even of life. We didn't think we were going to get out of it. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And you also, helping together in prayer for us, that, notice this, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Why have a prayer chain? So that it can become a thankfulness chain. That's the reason we include others in our prayer needs, so that they will also be there to rejoice with us and be thankful with us when God moves in answer to our prayers. That is why we should report back to others what God has done. Now, at all times rejoicing, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. All are expressions of walking by faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, they're temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then skipping down to 2 Corinthians 5, 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We can keep Paul's commands without them being burdensome when we are seeing the unseen truth of our situation by faith. That is how these three come into our lives, not as additional laws, but as additional graces. Now David brings it all together 
for us in just one psalm. I love this psalm and I love the way it ties it all together. Take a look. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. When we truly perceive that what is of absolute value to us in Christ is absolutely secure for us in Christ, we will rejoice with great joy. And this is God's will for you in Christ as we close. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In 1 John 2, verse 17, we read, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Pretty important. Doing the will of God. He is the one who abides forever. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now I want to make an observation here. It is easy for us to lose touch with this reality that results in our rejoicing, in our praying without ceasing, and our thankfulness. But when you're going through persecution, and I mean you're being hurt in various ways, by people who do not believe the gospel, people who hate you because they hate Christ. It has a wonderfully clarifying effect on your heart and mind. That is why you see brothers and sisters around the world rejoicing even in their persecution. That's why you see martyrs able to forgive as they're being burned. That is why you see Stephen asking God to forgive those who are stoning him. You see, when you are going through this type of experience, it detaches you from the delusions and the illusions of this world, and it puts you in touch with the real world. And in that moment, you will find yourself rejoicing you will find yourself praying in ways you've never prayed before. You will even find yourself thankful that you have the honor of suffering with your Lord. You see, what's the problem is, is that we so easily walk by sight rather than walking by faith. But when we walk by faith and not by sight, these three things are there. And they are constant. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but rather for the will of God. The best possible way to invest your life is in doing what you know to be the will of God. 
you will never regret having done the will of God. Now, there may be moments in between now and the presence of the Lord when you're there in heaven where you're going to have that faith tested because you'll suffer real loss. But it is the will of God for you to rejoice always. It's the will of God for you to pray without ceasing. It is the will of God for you to give thanks in everything. And so we conclude. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you, in Christ Jesus for you. These three commands must all be obeyed by faith. We rejoice in the truth that what is of absolute value to us is absolutely secure for us in Christ. We pray without ceasing by making every thought a conversation with God, the God who is always there. And we give thanks in every situation because we know that we always have far more and far better than we could ever deserve. So we not only walk by faith, we also rejoice and pray and give thanks by faith.